When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I still get emotional when I think about it because, of course, I knew Kaya a lot longer than anyone else because it took so long to write the book. I never thought I would meet Kaya in my life. But then when I met Daisy in person, I just felt like I knew Kaya. She's so perfect. She is so perfect. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Screen After Reading. This week, we are diving into one of the summer's most highly anticipated adaptations, Where the Crawdads Sing, which is based on the novel of the same title by Delia Owens. And this book has been in the ether for a minute now. It was one of Hello Sunshine Book Club's earliest picks for their book club, became a massive bestseller off the back of being selected for that book club and generated a lot of interest and a lot of noise and at around the same time got optioned by Hello Sunshine. And now several years later with pandemic delays and such, it is finally coming to the big screen July 15th. And it marks the feature film debut for Hello Sunshine. They have been behind some of the biggest TV hits of the last few years, including Little Fires Everywhere and several other book adaptations that they've brought to the small screen. But this is the first time they're embarking on producing a feature and yet again, based on another one of their hit book club picks. Now, Where the Crawdads Sing is set across a span of time in the 50s and 60s in a small town in North Carolina. And it's about a young woman, Kaya, who has grown up isolated in the marsh. They call her the marsh girl in town. In the film, she's played by Daisy Edgar Jones. And she has learned to live off the land and commune with nature uh, and basically take care of herself since she was a very young girl and abandoned by pretty much all of her family. And Kaya's life has changed when she meets a young man, Tate Walker, played by Taylor John Smith, who is a naturalist and loves the land as much as she does, but he is a townsperson. And Tate and Kaya strike up a friendship where he teaches her how to read that blooms into a romance. But where the crawdad sing is also a suspense thriller because it circles around the death of one Chase Andrews, the sort of popular boy jock in town, played by Harris Dickinson. And when Tate briefly abandons Kaya, she strikes up an unlikely romance with Chase. And he is sort of messing around on her and dating other girls. And so when Chase ends up murdered, Kaya is accused of his murder. And so the storytelling flips back and forth between the investigation of Chase's death and the trial that Kaya is forced to go through when she is accused of murder. And it also flips back to the past and her childhood, the difficulties and prejudices she faced from the townspeople, her relationship with Tate, as well as her relationship with Chase Andrews. And that is the story of Where the Crawdads Sing. And today we have a bunch of great conversations for you, including a chat with my colleague Lauren Morgan, 
a conversation with author Delia Owens and screenwriter Lucy Alibar, and a panel with the film's two leads, Taylor John Smith and Daisy Edgar-Jones, as well as producer Reese Witherspoon and director Olivia Newman. First up today, we have my conversation with my wonderful colleague, Lauren Morgan. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you for having me, Maureen. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to dig you out of Star Wars land a little. And uh, yeah, it's nice to talk about something that's not about a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, a little more earthbound here. Indeed, indeed. And uh, for our listeners, I just want to say that even though Lauren is our incredible photo editor and makes so much magic with photos for our whole team. She's also an avid reader and does amazing coverage for us on the children's book side of things. She has a lovely daughter herself and is always looking out for the best titles for parents. So you guys definitely go to EW.com and check out her coverage of those kinds of books. But today we're talking about an adult title, Delia Mm -hmm. Owens, Where the Crawdads Sing. And I guess I'll start by asking Lauren, what led you to first pick up the book? Was it word of mouth? Was it that it was a Hello Sunshine book club pick? I mean, how did it first come into your orbit? It actually came, it it happened, uh, I didn't read it when it first came out, but I read it during the opening months of the pandemic, kind of maybe summer 2020. Uh, I discovered the, uh, I'm a voracious buyer of ebooks, like I've been reading on my Kindle for years. And I discovered that my local library would lend out ebooks through the Libby app, which is a great app for voracious readers like myself. So it was basically kind of just going hog wild. And so, and I always kind of like to see like what's being the most requested or what has the longest wait times. And so kind of just I, like I had heard of the book and I knew it was on the bestseller list and that Reese Witherspoon, you know, had been optioning it and stuff like that. And so I kind of saw that, uh, you know, it was had such a long wait time. And I was like, well, this must be a great book. So I had a hold on it for several months before I think it popped up. And so got to read it. And, you know, it is like quite a page turner. I, you know, I, I thought it was one of like, sometimes, you know, you read the the bestsellers and you're just like, eh, this wasn't great. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you're just like, I don't understand why anyone's reading this thing. But you read it and you're like, oh, I see what the fuss is about. That was definitely how I felt with it. Yeah, it was kind of the perfect pandemic read since it's about a girl who's really isolated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was basically it. And at the time, like I, you know, we mentioned my daughter, my daughter was four and a half years old. She's about to turn seven. And like, you know, I couldn't really, we were just in the house with each other all the time. So basically we were watching nothing but cartoons. So reading really became kind of an escape. So I could Mm -hmm. just read something that was geared toward adults, which, which was nice for me. Um, And, you know, so and I thought like the book had like kind of a great sense of atmosphere and uh, Kaya as the lead character was I thought really sort of indelible yeah I was gonna say in terms of living up to that bestseller status what were some of the things that really grabbed you and and made you fall in love with the book I I thought like really like it had a great sense of atmosphere and you know I'm kind of like I've always fallen for things that have a great mood whether it being a TV show or a movie and stuff like that. So I just thought it was like very kind of moody and atmospheric. And I really enjoyed that part of it. And then I thought like Kaya as a lead character was really interesting. You know, she was sort of so isolated and closed down, but so sort of self-sufficient in her own way. And getting into a situation where, you know, she gets abandoned by basically her entire family as such a young person and having to kind of find it within herself to create her own life and, you know, find a way to survive. I just thought she was a great character. 
Yeah, I I can't wait for you to see the film because I feel mm-hmm. like it has really nailed that sense of atmosphere. I mean, they shot on location in Louisiana and you can just feel the sweat and the humidity oh, and uh, they're so in that environment. And I think that that can be something that's really hard to translate from the page. So I was really impressed by the ways that they've done that. That's good to hear. You never know with adaptations, whether they're going to kind of hit it or go chase something else. And you're like, this doesn't really get the book for me. It definitely gets the book for sure. Like, I think if you like the book, you'll like the film because Mm -hmm. it really, I think by virtue of the fact that Reese Witherspoon is a book lover, that this was Mm -hmm. one of her very early picks when she first started the Hello Sunshine book club. There's a clear reverence for the text there that translates into the movie making and I wish more production companies <laughs> would do that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's also like just talking about Reese Witherspoon. I think she's a really reliable producer. And usually I've watched other things that she's produced. And I mean, obviously, she's been in the business for years. She really knows what she's talking about. And I think she picks stuff of quality to do. And, you know, I think she's a great producer for adapting books as well. Yeah. Well, I know you've seen the trailer. I think Mm -hmm. um, anybody who's turned on a television in the last month probably has. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But what do you think of of the way they've cast the characters just from the taste of them that you have gotten from what you've seen? Daisy Edgar Jones, I never made it all the way through normal people, mostly again, because I had a four and a half year old at the beginning (laughs) of the pandemic, very hard to watch anything a little racy. But I did get to watch her in Under the Banner of Heaven, thought she was great in that. And when I heard of the casting, I was like, oh, that seems like that would be a good fit. Also, just the visual sense of what I had of Kaya in my head, I thought that's a great fit. Um, and then like Harris Dickinson as Chase Andrews, that seems like also a really good one. And then I don't know much about the person who's playing Tate. I've never seen him before in a movie. So I'm curious about how he is in, in the film. Taylor's really good. Um, yeah. he's, he's kind of a newcomer. And mm-hmm. he, he kind of gives me like a young Harrison Ford vibe a little. Oh, that's good to hear. You yeah. know, not I, just I, because I'm a Star Wars person, <laughs> but you know. No, he's he's really great. And I think fits the character so well, like you 100% understand their mm-hmm. the intrigue between Tate and Kaya with the way they've been cast. One thing I maybe didn't love about the book was mm-hmm. the way it handles race. Like it has this almost kind of magical Negro thing going on. Yeah, that's the one thing that when I did read the book, I was like, jumping seems pretty much kind of like just a stereotype. And it's like, I could see they wanted to, I mean, it's North Carolina in the 50s and 60s. It's like, you know, obviously race would come into play with it. But I did think like the portrayal of jumping was pretty thin. So I'm curious to see what the actor does with it. But yeah, that's what was probably my one hit against the book. I think the script has done a good job of trying to soften that mm-hmm. I mean, also, because I don't know about you, but I feel like reading dialect on the page can make yeah. things egregiously more stereotypical than <laughs> yeah, they yeah. might be. Um, and so they've like, lightened that a- up a little bit and tried to fill them in a bit more. Although I almost feel like it's such an essential character to the plot that it's mm-hmm. sort of a impossible task to like fully course correct on that. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, just without like, you know, not to get into spoilers, but jumping is a very important part for I mean, just in in terms of letting Kaya survive in the situation she's in. So he is sort of a key figure, just kind of what she was sort of better drawn or not quite such a 
a stereotype for that kind of time period. Yeah, definitely. In terms of the movie, do you have a, a character or a scene that you're most excited to see brought to life? Um, not to get too much into spoilers again, but I am curious to see how they pull off the ending because that was really one of the the things I was reading in the book. And when I hit the ending, I was like, oh, cool. Like, you know, I had had not guessed it sort of ahead of time. So I was sort of like, okay, that's pretty cool. I really would like to see, I'm like, I'm a big fan of Garrett Delahunt and I know he plays Pa. So I'm like, you know, I love seeing him no matter what he does. I think he's a sort of such an underrated actor. He's such, such a great actor, but I am really kind of just interested to see what Daisy Edgar Jones does with the role and how she inhabits it and all of that kind of stuff. So I like, can't really say like specific scene, but I'm just curious to see her performance overall. I just want to see how well she nails the character. Yeah, it's it's a very interesting performance. I mean, she said that she worked pretty extensively with a movement coach and she there's something very feral and wild about the way she moves and she almost takes on the like physicality of a bird in places. Oh, that's interesting. Um mm-hmm. so I think not in like a jarring way where you're like, What yeah. <laughs> what is this person <laughs> doing? But just subtly enough where you can really see how that would seep into someone's Mm -hmm. identity and the way they move through the world, given the way that Kaya has grown up. That's interesting, though. Yeah. She's a very physical performer, I think, even though she keeps playing these very cerebral roles. But I was going to ask what you thought of the twist ending, like without spoiling it, because I was definitely, (laughs) I did not see that coming. (laughs) No, I didn't see that either. I was just kind of like, okay, this is, you know, it's it's kind of hard to talk about. I mean, I assume people who are listening to this know the twist ending, but don't want to be one of those jerks who spoils it for them. <laughs> but yeah, it was definitely like I was kind of just reading it. And I really like ripped through the novel in a couple of days. Sometimes, you know, you get stuck in a novel and you're like, I've been reading this for a week and a half. I need to go faster. But this one, I just like I read it in like two to three days or really quick. So like I kind of came up on the ending and I was like, oh, oh OK. And then I was sort of was like, well, I see why it's a bestseller now. Because that <laughs> one, you know. Like, it was definitely like, oh, yeah, that's a set, you know, that was a satisfying kind of a little bit of a jump, you know, where you're like, oh, didn't see it, you know, so yeah, I have, you know, I saw the movie before I read the book. And Mm -hmm. uh, so we were getting to like, I could emotionally feel that we were getting to the end of the running time. And I was like, oh, maybe they're just gonna leave this open ended and, and, you know, not give us an answer. And then I was like, Oh, well, we got an answer. And it is not the one I expected. (laughs) You know, that's funny, though, you said that you had actually seen the movie before you read the book. I have had that experience so many times of seeing a movie and thinking, Oh, that makes I'm sure that's kind of an interesting book and then doing it. It's only until recently that I've actually gotten in the habit of going to the book first and then seeing the movie. But there's so many movies that I've, you know, seen and then been like, Oh, that might be an interesting book and then go and reading it that way so it's definitely it's always funny with like the ones that are kind of like mystery thrillers you're like which one would have been better to see first you know before you do that but i think the film does a slightly better job of making it really shocking I mean, not that it isn't on the page. And it's hard to say, right? Because when I was Mm -hmm. reading it, I already knew. Yeah. But I I feel like already knowing you could see things threaded in where it was once you knew it was kind of obvious. So I I, impossible to say if I had done the reverse, if that would have also been the case. It was one of those things when I uh, I did finish it, then you kind of could see all the like connecting. You're like, oh, I see what you guys did. You know, I see what, you know, Delia Owens did for it. Yeah. Um, But definitely 
one of those where whether you read the book first or second, like they feel so of a piece with each other and such similar Mm -hmm. experiences. And it's one of those where it's really hard to say which one you liked better. Because I I think sometimes the divide is very clear (laughs) between adaptation and book, but this is definitely not the case here. But that's always really great to see that like when, you know, an adaptation nails the book, like nails the book really well, because there's always I mean, I have a whole list of things where I was like, this was a good book and uh, not a great adaptation of it. And, you know, there's the rare ones where you're like, yeah, that was kind of a better adaptation of the book than the book was. So, you know, yeah, those are more rare, but it's kind of nice to see when both of them are satisfying experiences. Uh, Well, something unique to the film is the fact that it has a new original song by Taylor Swift. Are you Swifty, Mm -hmm. Lauren? You know, what's interesting. I was never a Swifty, but as I mentioned, my daughter before is starting to, you know, kind of explore music outside of the Disney, you know, soundtrack thing. So it was funny because like I kind of discovered that she liked Katy Perry and there were a couple of other artists and I was like, hold on, kid, I think you might be a Swifty. And I was right, because I just started playing her. So it's been in like the last couple months that we've actually started, like I've sort of explored uh, Taylor's wider catalog, because mostly I always like just listen to really depressing music, as my (laughs) husband likes to complain about me. But I did really, I listened to this song uh, several times, and I do like the Fleet Foxes. So it kind of had like, Mm. sort of like I was like listening to the first time, I'm like, this is reminding me of something. I'm not quite sure what this is reminding me of. And then I was like, oh, this is reminding me of some of the Fleet Foxes stuff. So that was, I, I don't know if that's ever a comparison Taylor Swift has gotten before, but that was like one of those things that it reminded me of. But I really thought it was a lovely song. And I really did think it got the mood of the book really well. So I'm curious to see about the movie. Yeah, it was really interesting. As listeners will hear later in the panel interview that we did, Olivia Newman was talking about who directed the film. She mm-hmm. was saying how she really wanted to approach it as kind of folklore or a fable. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was so funny because Taylor actually approached them and was like, hey, I wrote this song for the movie. Do you guys want it? And it had been part of her. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yes. Like, how could you say no to that? Yeah. (laughs) But part of it had been part of her writing process while writing folklore. And I just thought that that was a really fun. Yeah odd coincidence that sort of those words would be thrown out and have that relation yeah. to each other and that she also created it organically for this work of her not even knowing because it's like you know there's so many people make stuff for movies and stuff like that and it's always kind of a little subpar but the fact that you know this was something that she organically did and then offered it to them and i mean i'm sure when they got that email or call about that they probably were dancing just to have someone of their caliber write a song for them but that's kind of an amazing thing yeah, no, it's really cool. I mean, imagine getting, oh, hey, it's Taylor Swift, and um, I really love this book, so I wrote you a <laughs> song for your movie. <laughs> yeah, I feel like kind of a one-in-a-million dream for people who have to market a movie, too. Yeah. Well, that was all of my questions on Where the Crawdads Sing, but we have a couple questions here on screen after reading. We like to ask mm-hmm. our guests before we let them go. And I'll start by asking, do you have an all-time favorite adaptation, one that you think maybe is better than the book or just a really perfect adaptation of a book you loved? Okay, I have two, which I don't know as violates the... Okay, so the first (laughs) is um, Age of Innocence, the Martin Scorsese's uh, version of the Edith Wharton novel. I love Edith Wharton. She's probably my favorite novel novelist. Um, And I just thought... and And I literally saw this when it came out when I was like 
14, 15, something around that age. And I just thought the adaptation was so exquisite. And I've revisited it later on. And I think it's just a great adaptation of that novel. And he understood the sort of the precision of Edith Wharton's writing and the society that she was representing and how they were almost as violent as mobsters were, and you know, to go back to his other work. Um, so, you know, but just like in a much quieter way, like they could be very devastating. So I just think that's like sort of an exquisite adaptation of her. And, and Edith Wharton's had a lot of decent adaptations. The other one that I love, and this is something that's kind of been bubbling up right now, is the 1995 version of Persuasion uh, with Amanda Root and Kieran Hines. I saw it like in the mid 2000s. Like I had actually gotten it on a DVD from Netflix. And I remember watching that like three times in a row. And I think it's just sort of like such a wonderful interpretation of that novel. And it got a sort of sense of melancholy. And, you know, and I think Amanda Root's lovely and Kieran Hines is lovely. And I know that's there's a big fancy Netflix adaptation that seems a little controversial coming up. So but I'm kind of, uh, I still adhere to that one being the best one. I haven't seen the new one yet. Every Austin adaptation comes with plenty of fodder for debate. So. Yes, that is true. That is true. And I'm pretty sure this one will as well. So, yeah. But anyway, I think the 1995 version, I just love it. You know, there was a lot of great Austin adaptations in the 90s. But yeah, I thought that one was really wonderful. And this is uh, a question we've been calling Better Off Red, which is um, <laughs> an adaptation that you think just completely failed its source material. Um, I will say, I know this is, might be controversial because I know there are some people who are fans of the movie, um, but I feel like Never Let Me Go didn't quite get the brilliance of the book. And like there was like th- little things they left out about like the, the cassette and all sorts of things that, that I thought were so moving and, and, and great in the book that I just, I thought that the adaptation didn't quite get it. And I don't know if I should go back and revisit it. Cause like, you know, Andrew Garfield was new at the time and all these other people. But at the time I just was super disappointed in that one because I loved that book so much. So mm-hmm. that was kind of the one I would think off my head. And then I'm probably going to think of another one in like 20 minutes and be like, no, this one, what am I talking about? You know, but. <laughs> then that's the one that pops for me right now. And then lastly, is there a book you love that you think would make a great adaptation that just hasn't been made yet? Uh, I'm going to go back to Edith Wharton and Custom of the Country. And they've been batting around potentially adapting it. I know Scarlett Johansson was attached to one. I think there is another one that's like someone's talking about doing it. But it's like such a great novel. And I've been dying for a good adaptation of it. It's just like one of those ones where, you know, I think would be an an interesting adaptation to to make of that. Yeah. Well, the Gilded Age is all the rage now. Thanks yeah, to that's true. HBO and Julian Fellows. So you never know. <laughs> yeah. So people might go back to because there was like Edith Wharton had a bit of a moment in the mid 90s as well, like as with Austin, because there's that House of Mirth and um, the Ethan Firm adaptation with Liam Neeson. And uh, yeah, she's been kind of a not adapted since so much since then. So you know, I'm, I think maybe we might be due, but we'll see. Yeah, so. I would I would agree with that. Well, amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lauren. It was great talking books with you. <laughs> yeah, thanks for so much for having me and all the nice things you said at the beginning of the oh. podcast. I really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, you're so welcome. I'm, we're so lucky to have you on our team. And uh, I know that I love working with you. So really glad to have you on in chat today. Oh, thank you so much, Maureen. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much, Lauren. 
Now we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll have my conversation with author Delia Owens and screenwriter Lucy Alibar. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back. I am thrilled to be joined by the author of Where the Crawdads Sing, Delia Owens, and the screenwriter, Lucy Alibar. Welcome, ladies. Thank you for having us. Delia, I'm going to start off with you and just ask, what first inspired you to write Where the Crawdads Sing, and, and how long were you working on it before you ended up getting the publishing deal? It took me 10 years to write the book, and the inspiration for Where the Crawdads Sing came from my entire life. I grew up in South Georgia and uh, riding my horse and walking through the oak forest. My mother always encouraged me to go as far into the wilderness as I could. She wanted me to experience seeing wildlife, and, and she would say to me, go way out yonder where the crawdads sit. And so I've known that expression all my life, and I've, she didn't know how seriously I would take her advice because I until she saw me boarding an airplane with a one-way ticket to Africa where I stayed for 23 years. And so I've always lived in the wilderness. I've always been so interested in how much we can learn about human nature from nature itself. And that was the inspiration. And then how did Hello Sunshine taking an interest in the book change its trajectory? And what was your reaction when they said they wanted to turn it into a film? First of all, I was just hoping a few people would read this book, you know, a crazy title, where the crawdads sing, you know, it's not exactly warm and fuzzy. And um, so I was just hoping it would be noticed. And then Reese Witherspoon called and said she wanted to be on in her book club. So, oh my gosh, that was only a few weeks after it came out. So then it started going up the bestseller list. And honestly, I would just don't know where the book would be today without me because that was a major uh, kickstart. And then my agent called one day and said, well, something interesting has happened. That's as excited as he gets about anything. He's very low-key. He says, well, something interesting has happened. Uh, Sony and Hello Sunshine want to make your hard ads into a movie. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was just thrilled and met all the players, and it's just been a really fun ride. And then, Lucy, at what point did the novel come into your orbit, and what about it grabbed you? Uh, so I was—I uh, had known the people at Hello Sunshine for some time, and we had been talking about finding something to do together because I'm from the South, and I told them I wanted to do something that had real stakes and real adventure, and preferably, you know, I love, I love characters who are a little bit marching to the beat of their own drum. and so. They gave me this book to read, and I read it on the plane. And Delia's writing, you, you read a book and you see the movie in your mind. And I, I am certainly not the only person who said that. I think that's the reason it's the bestseller for five years that it has been. It just, I saw everything. I smelled the grits that Kai was making. When she was digging mussels, I, I smelled the mud and the dirt. You know, I was so viscerally in this world. 
And I just, I called as soon as I landed, I said, I have to do that. I please let me pitch on this. I love this so much. And, uh, and so then I developed a pitch and I took it to Elizabeth Gabler, the head of uh, what was then Fox 2000. And uh, they were finally, finally my, you know, that my best luck happened and I, I got the job. So that was, that was it. Yeah. Very famously before this project, you co-wrote Beasts of the Southern Wild, which is also about a young girl isolated in nature. So did you draw on any particular parallels or lessons that you learned writing that? You know, what I drew on mostly for, for both Beasts and Where the Crawdads Sing, honestly, was my own childhood, which wasn't that far away from where Delia grew up. And it's it's so funny. I'm from a town about 30 minutes away from Delia's hometown. And I know it very, very well. And I wondered, it was so funny because it's not in North Carolina, it's in North Florida and South Georgia. And I saw that marsh and that swampland. I saw that so clearly when she wrote it. And I always wondered if that was kind of why if we were kind of in our minds going to the same places. Uh, but, but like Delia, I grew up uh, very close to nature, where we were both from people have a very close relationship with the land and with the water and with the marsh and the animals. And so I think, like Delia, I drew from that. And then how much did the two of you, Delia and Lucy, like work together or meet up, if at all, while you were writing the script? I mean, Lucy, were there any particular things you felt like you had to ask Delia for insight on or some extra bit of understanding? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Olivia Newman, the director, and I... It was very important for us that we had as many animals in the in the movie as we could. And animals are always a hard thing to negotiate with the studio because there's there's CGI and they're it's very expensive and it's kind of a, a studio nightmare to pack your movie full of animals. But Delia's book is full of animals and we knew we had to do it. So both of us uh, would email Delia. Uh, there's a period where it was it was pretty strong about would, would we see this bird in this marsh at this time of year. And then Delia would come back and say, absolutely not. But you'd see this bird and this bird and this bird. And if you want to do that original bird, you could set it in the, you know what I mean? So she was so, so specific and helpful and also never made you feel foolish for not knowing. And I always wondered, if there's this moment in the book and in the movie where Tate is teaching Kaya math and she the way he teaches her math and reading is that he never talks down to her and he never makes her feel foolish. And Delia's like that when she's explaining much more complicated science to a bunch of Hollywood people. And Delia, what was that process like for you? I mean, did you want to be really involved from the beginning? It was truly amazing. I knew these players. I knew Lucy Alvarez worked from Beach of the Southern Wild, and as she said, it, it was also about a young girl in nature and uh, some of the same issues in her dad, and I just thought she's the perfect person, and so I, I just was overjoyed about it, and then I, I get this call from Howard Sunshine inviting me to LA, so I go there, and first we have lunch, and there's a, you know, a screenwriter and a director and the producers and everything, and all of this is, is so crazy exciting for me. These ladies work hard. It's not a free martini lunch. You know, we really work hard. And then they sat Lucy and I out on the patio 
and they they took a bottle of champagne and just plonked it down on the table with just Lucy and I, and they said, okay, the two of you get to know each other and talk about the script. <laughs> so I thought, oh, it's wonderful. And then I, I did it. I went out after Lucy had written, I think, several drafts of the screenplay. I went out again, and we sat around that table. I don't know. I'm sure it was six or eight hours going through the entire script, talking about this paragraph and that paragraph, and we, and they, they, I felt like I could say anything I wanted to say, and they listened to my comments, and I could make suggestions, and they would take them or not, but I could make them, and, and I always felt included, and part of the process, and that, I think is, I don't know how rare that is, but it, it was a great feeling, and I think we were a team that worked well together. We would work hard and we would laugh hard. Absolutely. Lucy, in those uh, meetings around the table, whether it was the first one or some of those later sessions, was there one thing you feel like was particularly enlightening that Delia said that like really unlocked something for you within the story? There was a lot. I mean, I will say that making Delia a part of those conversations and realizing that we're all here because of the author of the book, I think that's not just a good practice because it's the right thing to do. I think you make a better movie that way because she's there's she's the reason it's so popular. So Delia said this really interesting thing, which is she talked about and Delia, I'm so sorry if I'm about to butcher this and paraphrase it, but she talked about how females of the species need each other, not just a mate. It's if you look at different species of animals, the females have these packs together. And if you are isolated from a pack, there's a way that's a very unnatural way to be. And again, like Delia says in her book, and and like the movie says, it's not a judgment, it's not good or bad, but there is something about that need for female companionship that really, really stuck with me. And I tried to uh, infuse that in the movie with the relationship between Kaya and Mabel and Kaya and her mother. And even when Kaya thinks about her sisters, but that all came from just listening to Delia. Yeah. And when you're adapting something that has been on the New York Times bestseller list for as long as it was, like, is there an intimidation factor? How true do you want to be to the novel while also allowing room for your creative process? Well, I, we, we talked about this a lot because when Reese optioned the book, it was not yet a bestseller because it just hadn't come out yet. And so to me, the most important thing was remembering that we're all on the same team. We're all just trying to make a great movie. And I think Delia came to the table with that as well. And that was why she was so open to certain changes or different directions we would go. And to me, the key to not being intimidated was just that humility that I watched Delia bring to the table, that I watched Reese bring to the table, that, that Taylor Swift brought to the table when she wrote the song Carolina on spec. It was, we, we all wanted to make the best movie that we could. Well, you did, as you mentioned, make some changes. Um, I would say predominantly in structure. It's just the trial is a lot more present throughout the storytelling and you sort of increased the impact of David Strayhorn's character, uh, the lawyer, Tom Milton. So what prompted that in your approach? When you read the book, you there's a past where we're walked with this five-year-old child in the marsh, and there's a present where we're with this 
murder investigation. We're not even with Kaya in the murder investigation until some point into the book. And in a book, that is an engine that will sustain itself. You keep reading because you as the reader understand that at some point these are going to come together. When you're watching that, those connections don't come as clearly. And so we needed from the very beginning to have Kaya in a very high-stakes situation with David Strathairn's character is the, the way that she gets out of this. And by leaning into that relationship, what we hope is that the movie feels a little more edge of your seat. And Delia, when you started getting involved with all of this, was there one particular aspect of your story that you were most excited to see brought to life? First of all, I was so happy that they said they were going to stay with the story. I mean, that. No author thinks their story can be improved upon, but, you know, you always <laughs> think that going to change. And, um, but they stayed true to the story. And I was, I was wanted very much for them to enhance and include the themes that meant a lot to me. The themes that meant a lot to me were, and, and Lucy was talking about it briefly, is that the importance of family, the importance of group. What, how do we feel when we're isolated? Uh, genetically, we are social creatures. So when you're isolated and you're alone, when you're rejected, when you're discriminated against, how does that make you feel? How does that make you behave? Conrad's is actually quite a complex story. It deals with a lot of human issues. But I wrapped all of that serious themes and messaging that I wanted to do, I wrapped it in a soft package so that it would be readable. I wrapped it in beautiful scenes of nature. I wrapped it with a love story. I, I, I did all that on purpose because I wanted to tell these serious things that I wanted it to be in a very readable way. And the film does the same thing. It had it still touches on these serious issues like rejection and abandonment and aggression. But the love story carries it through. The nature enhances the things. But with the movie... Uh, the movie stays exactly with the same story, but the movies are always so much more graphic and visual and dramatic because you see it. And so to me, this same story in movie form is so much more dramatic. I feel like it's this beautiful story, but thundering in the background, literally pounding in the background is this mystery and this, this, this the crime and the dramatic part of that. And that that's what I think Lucy did so well because you're just you're weaving in and out. It's almost it almost has this flow like the ocean of, you know, the waves being very strong and then pulling back and being softer. But it's 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 a thriller. I mean it's <laughs> more it's more thrilling than the book because because you're seeing it. But also I think the way it's written and presented makes that happen. And it's Beautiful. Yeah, Lucy, I was going to ask, that's quite a task to balance. You've got Kaya's coming of age story. You've got the two different love stories. And then you've got this thriller and this mystery. And how do you balance all of that in a script? Because any one of those things could be a movie in and of itself. They, they absolutely, absolutely could. And, and by the way, I think that would have been another really interesting way to do I can say this now is I I wonder what this would have looked like as a limited series uh 
you know, what I love about Delia's book is, yes, there is nature and there is science that honestly goes over my head. And there is this incredible love story and this there's coming of age and there is fear and there's almost, you know, a, a psychological and real thriller. But I think that's what life is like. I mean, especially if you are that age that we spoke with Kaya in your early 20s, you're getting everything all at once, right? Like you're falling in love and you're also thinking about this other person and you're thinking about your family in a different way than you've thought about them before. And you're really seeing how your childhood impacts every decision you make. And uh, and then you throw a thriller on top of that. I just thought that was actually a very real way to tell the story. Yeah. Was there anything you wanted to include, Lucy, whether it was something from the book or an invention of your own that ended up having to be cut for time or some other production reason? Yes. Chanel the skunk. My, my favorite <laughs> my favorite character. No, one of my favorite characters in, in the book is uh, the skunk that Kaya's family lives with that lives under their house and her name is Chanel, which I, I thought was just a stroke of genius. And the, and also so Southern. I mean, it's the way Delia writes the way that Southern women are so clever and just come up with these, you know, you see, you sort of picture people around a table at Oxford University or something. And it's, it's, it's just brilliant. So there's a skunk named Chanel that lives under her house and the dad is really upset and wants to kill the skunk and her brother's like, no, the skunk. Because then if we get rid of her, just another skunk will come in her place. And the skunk you know is better than the skunk you don't. And, and I just, I loved her so much. And so we worked so hard to get Chanel in the movie. And so we got a skunk and she was such a bad actor. She bit the actress playing Kaya. She was like a real method actor and she wouldn't do what she was told. She was late to set. She was a, just a real problem. And then she ended up they ended up cutting her in the edit. And so when I came to watch the movie for the first time, the producer stepped in front of me and she said, we cut Chanel just to let, just to prepare me. And I, I was devastated. Oh, devastated. Um, well, obviously a big part of turning something into a film or television show is also casting. And you have this core trio of Daisy Taylor and Harris Delia how much did they match your original vision of the characters or perhaps even shift it after the fact? <laughs> I still get emotional when I think about it because, of course, I knew Kaya a lot longer than anyone else because it took so long to write the book. And, and, and all the characters, each one of these characters meant a lot to me. I never thought I would meet Kaya in my life. And um, I, I knew... Some of the actors they were actors that they were female actors they were considering and any of them would quite work and then when I saw the audition they sent me the audition tape that Daisy Edgar Jones did for Kaya and I just and then when I met Daisy in person I just felt like I'm meeting Kaya she's so perfect she is so perfect for the role but I feel that way about everyone I feel like they cast brilliantly I mean it was. I feel, I, I don't know that they, they could have done better. Now, some of them I don't see is quite the same way. I mean, I, I, they're not physically exactly the same as I saw them, but that doesn't matter. I think all of them acted very well, and I think the casting was, was brilliant. And what about you, Lucy? How much did the casting either match or 
or shape your vision of these characters from the way you originally saw them on the page when you read Delia's book to how they brought your words to life? Well, I've been a fan of Daisy Edgar Jones for such a long time. Like so many people, I watched her normal people and was just blown away by that performance. And so it, they, I was told that she was reading for Kaya, uh, and I just, I, my heart just jumped into my throat. And then, you know, the funny thing about Taylor John Smith, who plays Tate, is that one of the first, when Dilly and I had that bottle of champagne at the Beverly Hills Hotel, we were asking who she was thinking about for tea. And Delia said Robert Redford. And so I, I was like, who's a young Robert Redford? Like, who's Robert Redford? You know what I mean? Who's he right now? It's a really interesting, a young Robert Redford is exactly who this is. And then if you look at Taylor, he's his own person, obviously. And I don't always like to say this is the next Terry Grant or whoever, but Taylor really does give this young Robert Redford vibe of being sensitive and very soulful and there's a kind of quiet stillness to him and, and I just I thought he was perfect. And then Harris, uh, who who plays Chase is just he's delightful. He brings this incredible again, sensitivity and this kind of fire in him and he's handsome but you're always a little scared. Yeah, I love that you say that because when I first read the book, I definitely pictured a young Robert Redford. So that's right? amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said it as a joke because, you know, to me, I'm sort of the same age as Robert Redford. I was like, in my world, that's who I would have chosen. But of course, yes. Yeah. <laughs> ah, perfect. Well, for both of you, uh, Delia, you can start. Kaya's drawings and her art are just such a huge part of this storytelling. What was it like the first time you actually saw them in person or on screen? Okay, this is a story. So I get to the set, and first of all, Kaya's shack in the movie looks exactly the way I picture Every single little board, directed out old screen, veranda. All of it is a thing from my mind. And then, of course, there's that scene where Kaya sits down and opens one of her books. We don't want to give too many spoilers here. But she's looking at some of her work. And and I just thought, oh, that's so great. You know, they've gone to this detail to, to have, all, you know, all the work that she did. So later I'm walking around and one, during one of the breaks, when they're moving the lights around and everything, you know, the movie set is a lot of, you know, five minutes of action and then a lot of waiting. And I, I find the, the props truck. And there are all these drawings and books, Kaya's books. And I open them up, and they, they're not fake. It has the beautiful cover with her name and... Inside are not fake pages, it is her drawings in these books. And I'm just, I, I can't even believe it. I can't believe that they went to this much trouble to do to get these drawings of the shells and the birds and, and the marsh. And so I was so taken by this that at the end of the movie, they, they gifted me that art. <laughs> so now I have it in my own. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> 
Lucy, um, same question for you. I mean, obviously, you're writing about these things and picturing them in your mind. But what was it like actually seeing the physical objects? It, it was very similar to what Delia said. I mean, it, it, to me, it was exactly what I pictured in the book. And it wasn't it wasn't just the pictures themselves. It was the way that Sue Chan, our production designer, arranged them in Kaya's house. Because it looks, when you see Kaya's house out, it looks the way an artist decorates her own house with her own work. There's this slight insecurity to some to some of the early ones and then the ones she's really proud of are, are more front and center. Uh, and it, it was it was incredible. And it was it also just reminded me that it's also the story about an artist becoming an artist. And especially I think to tell the story of a woman becoming an artist, I haven't seen a lot of movies or read a lot of books that do that. And so that was another thing it was just a huge privilege to, to work on this movie. Delia, uh, you got to visit set. Can you tell us a bit more about that experience and, and what that was like? It was so real. I, I, there, I would walk down to a beach and there would be a, a campfire and, and Kaya would be sitting around the campfire with Chase, just the way I wrote it. And then, you know, this beautiful the real moon would come up because, of course, Libby Newman, the um, fabulous director, had planned everything, so the moon would come up just the right time. And then a fake moon would come up over here because the real moon didn't give enough light, so you had to have the movie magic to do the fake moon. And then the waves would start coming onto the beach just the right, you know, size and rhythm because there was a big wave machine out there and the fire flickering on their faces just the way I wrote it. And then they would start speaking, and their words, my words, would come out. I would hear their, my words coming out. And that, that was just, it was very emotional to me because I would watch these scenes that I had written in my head, and, and you, you don't even realize other people can see these scenes because you've written them and these details, and they're in your mind. And suddenly you see them on um, the courtroom. The courtroom scenes are so dramatic and so perfectly displayed the way I saw the, the, the way I imagined them and but so dramatic and when it came time for the verdict to be read oh my gosh it, it, I was I was I think I, I on the first spring I think I you know grabbed Elizabeth Baker's arm because I was like so tense I mean I knew what the verdict was going to be I had written the verdict I knew what the you just, it's so dramatic, you just think, you're just so into it. So, to me, it was very personal to sit there and watch it. And um, because little details that I had thought of many years ago, there they are. Uh, so, done so well, and, and, and uh, it, was just, it was so real and life-changing for me. <laughs> Lucy, one thing that really struck me while I was watching the film was that it kind of feels like a throwback to the big summer movies of the 90s. It's like very counter-programming to superhero movies and the types of blockbusters we're seeing right now. So, I, I mean, was that sort of nostalgia or that feeling something you wanted to situate yourself in? Like, was there a desire to sort of latch on to kind of this fascination with the 1990s that I feel like is happening in youth culture right now. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, I am not 
sure I should I should know when some of these movies were made, but especially with that Kaya Tate love story and with Kaya's story itself, I was looking at a lot of Terrence Malick films. So um, Badlands is so evocative and it's about living in nature and there were just a lot of scenes that I would just watch over and over again. Uh, the first half of New World is something Olivia Newman and I talked about a lot and uh, they both give you that he is so good at showing what it feels like to fall in love, especially when you're young. I think New World might have been in the 90s, but I, I should know that. I'm sorry. Delia, when did you first find out Taylor Swift was writing a song for the film and what was your reaction? <laughs> you can't believe it. I found out 2021 in the summer and I could tell no one. I could tell, I couldn't tell my best friends. I could tell no one. And, um, I was in, on the set and Elizabeth Gabler of Sony um, asked me to come into her trailer. It was lunchtime, and she said, I have a surprise for you. And anybody who knows me will tell you that I'm very seldom speechless. We were standing up, and she said, uh, Taylor Swift is writing the, has written the theme song for Where the Crawdads Sing. And I went, Taylor Swift knows my book? I was just, I was just. I mean, I didn't even know she would know my book, but she had read it and loved the book. And so she created, wrote the music, composed the music and the words for the song. And then so Elizabeth played it for me. And the only only thing she had to play it on was this old, I'm sure it was the oldest iPad in existence. So it wasn't, it didn't It didn't have great sound, but oh my gosh, the, the, I could, you could tell even in that setting and then from that. Flair that it was it was just it was beautiful and I was just so emotionally touched and speechless. <laughs> Lucy, what about you? Same question. When did you find out? And and how crazy is that to know that your script is going to now be underscored by a Taylor Swift song? You know, it's uh, it, it's incredible. I mean, similar to Delia, I was there was a lot of frustration in not being able to tell my friends, uh, a lot of whom are Swifties, uh, as they say. And what I love about what Taylor Swift did is, first of all, she wrote the song on spec, so she wasn't even sure that it would be in the movie, and she didn't get paid for it, and it, it, she did it anyway, which I always... It's such a rarity these days. And then is that she used only instruments that were from or before that time period that we see in the book so there's this kind of haunting there's this phrase high lonesome sound about bluegrass music that there's this high lonesome quality to the song that I just love and it feels like one of those songs that you heard a long time ago but you've never heard it before and that's what the best songs do it's it's gorgeous yeah well that was all of my questions unless there is anything either one of you wanted to add uh, about the book or the film that I didn't ask you about. I just want to say Adelia's going to get embarrassed, but I I have heard so many stories about writers like William Faulkner and you know F. Scott Fitzgerald coming to Hollywood and they're these brilliant no novelists and then the Hollywood machine disrespects them and breaks them and tells them the writer is the, the novelist especially is nothing and they they leave very bitter and disillusioned and angry. And watching the way that Elizabeth Gabler and Reese Witherspoon respected 
Delia as a voice and respected her work. And she read every production draft, I think, and was able to give notes on it. That, unfortunately, that's still such a rarity. And I hope this movie will show why it's why it's good to respect the novelist. Because I don't think we would have had as good a time working on this if we hadn't been able to have Delia. And all the animals would be wrong. <laughs> well, never. I thank you. And I would just like to say to that, from my side of the same statement, it, it, it was very true. I mean, you know, I didn't know what to expect from working with the movie people. But all I can say is that at this stage and at the end of this, we're coming down to the end of it now. I just have so much respect for everyone involved. They're hardworking. They're talented. Um, they're just very gracious. And we, we had a lot of fun, but we worked hard. And I think it was the mutual respect that we all had for each other that made it work so well. Yeah. It's been a wonderful experience. Well, we here at Screen After Reading love to hear about authors being respected and included in the process. So thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. Thank you. And last, we have a special EW around the table for you with the cast, Taylor John Smith and Daisy Edgar Jones, as well as producer Reese Witherspoon and director Olivia Newman. And if you want more from this conversation, you can check out the video on EW.com. So, Reese, this book was one of your earliest selections for the Hello Sunshine Book Club. What was it about the novel that made you decide to highlight it in this way? Gosh, when I read this book, it just drew me in. I just fell in love with Kaya. I fell in love with this world. It reminded me of classic films like Splendor in the Grass, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, my very first movie I ever did was called Man on the Moon. It was about a little girl in Louisiana running around, falling in love with two different boys, actually our two sisters falling in love with it. I can't remember the plot. <laughs> it was a long time ago, but it reminded me of the South and that sort of classic storytelling and that takes you back to a time and place that just feels a little simpler. Um, but it just drew me in. And then, of course, Delia layered over all of these kind of um, real-world, natural-world metaphors, and she just writes with such richness. I thought, this would make an amazing movie. And so you've been working on adapting it ever since you read it. Well, I got called by Elizabeth Gabler, who I'd done a bunch of movies with. We did um, Water for Elephants together. We did Walk the Line together. And she was like, should we make this into a movie? And I was like, yes, it would be <laughs> incredible. Um, so we got busy working on it. And um, it was just dreamy to work with Lucy Alibar, who's an incredible screenwriter. And um, because she so innately understands the South, she grew up in the South, um, her work just has this authenticity to it that I think really, um, really translated Delia's words really well. And Olivia, this is your big budget feature debut. So how did you come on board then, Olivia? And Reese, what made her the right fit for the project? Um, well, I read, like most people, I read the book and couldn't put it down. I read it in two days. Um, and it tapped into something um, very personal because uh, my father um, bought land in upstate New York when we were kids. We grew up in the city in New York, um, but he was really a country boy and he wanted to make sure that we knew what it was to, you know, be out and explore the woods. And so um, I come from a big family. We didn't have a lot of money, but we had this piece of land and he built a house on it. And so a, a lot of my childhood was spent exploring the woods. And so I think reading um, Delia's book tapped into that sort of 
imagination I had as a kid of what would it be like to actually have to survive alone in the wild. Um, it was, to me, it sort of tapped into the, the ultimate um, childhood story. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, having the murder mystery in there that, you know, kind of is this the driving um, part of the plot. Um, and then this epic romance, it, I read it during the beginning of the pandemic, and I was craving an escape into romance. And so it just sort of tapped into all those things for me. And when I heard they were looking for a director, I told my team, I have to pitch on this. Um, and um, I really give them credit for knocking down the doors and saying, please hear this, um, please hear this client out. And um, first I met with Lauren Neustadter um, and Aaron Simonoff and gave them my pitch. And then I met with Elizabeth and then with Reese and it sort of just kept hoping and praying that um, my vision for it um, fit what they were looking for. And It did. It did. (laughs) You're amazing. Your work is so beautiful. And just you brought it to life in such a vivid, gorgeous way. And we're so lucky. lucky. And then how did you land on Daisy and Taylor for your leads here? (laughs) I want a sweepstakes. I got the sort of um, breakdown through my inbox and I was like, oh, my gosh, this looks amazing. So I bought the book as quickly as I could. Um, but I was filming on something at the time. I was filming this sci-fi drama. So I was sort of reading it in a spaceship, um, which was really <laughs> odd. <laughs> and I, um, I had this general meeting with Livy and I had like three days to prepare for the audition. So I was learning the lines, like trying to read the book and just like fell so deeply in love with Kaya. I just found her so enigmatic and curious and just so brilliant. And I just wanted to like consume as much of her life as I could. So I worked on it, tried to kind of get some version of the accent together, cobbled it together. Um, and then I, because it was during the pandemic, had a Zoom audition, which I'd never had before, which is quite strange. So I balanced Livy on my laptop on a chair somehow, and my friend was reading in the bath. I don't know. It was the best lighting. Um, and we did the audition and it just, yeah, it felt really right. And I was really I'm proud of my work and I thought well if it's meant to be you know what's for you won't pass you by so um then when I found out I got it it was just over the moon really um yeah I was working on another project at the time too and I think I had two or three days to prepare for it and I couldn't find the book in a store and so I had to buy the audio book and I was trying to like brush through it so I put it on one and a half speed which is <laughs> not the move especially with like the thick accent and so I was trying to like get as much of the story in, as I could and um, I think we had a chemistry over Zoom which was quite strange as well um, but I'm glad that we you were able had to chemistry even over their Zooms like that was pretty major I, I don't know how you guys decide that I mean I felt like we connected but I'm like this is a tough job for for you guys to figure out who connects with who and um, ended up going great uh, and then I finally got to finish the book on the flight home uh, from Australia when I was filming. And uh, at the end of the book, I was a little uh, distraught emotionally and the air stewardess had to come tap me on my shoulder and check on me <laughs> to make sure I was okay. And I kind of pointed to the book and, and she nodded like she had, uh, she had been there herself. So oh, yeah, wow. it, was a good, uh, it was a good button to the end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so amazing how much this book has resonated with people all over the world. So it's sold over 11 million copies. and which is just incredible in the publishing world, but it's just really, it taps into something. Um, I don't know, just, I don't know, maybe, maybe y'all want to talk a little bit about like, what is it that resonates with people in your opinion? Yeah. I mean, I think it also came out during, I think it came out during a time when 
we were great, you know, came out or, you know, right before the pandemic, but a lot of people read it during that time of isolation. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is something really relatable about how, how Kaya manages, um, a very lonely and solitary world, but, mm. but manages to find a way not just to survive, but to thrive. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that was what really struck me about her character is that this is not just a survival tale. This is a tale of a girl who goes above and beyond expectation and, um, surprises us at every turn with what she's capable of. Um, so I, and I think that really spoke, I don't know, it spoke to me at that time. And I imagine, um, you know, a lot of people were sort of, wanting to make sure that there was going to be, you know, sort of a brightness at the end of um, kind of a dark time. Yeah. Well that makes sense. Yeah, totally. And her resilience is one that I think, like, it's incredible what we, you know, how we can bounce back from things. And she has so many knocks, but she keeps going and she, you know, ultimately becomes really self-reliant. And I think one thing I love about her is how underestimated she is. And I, and despite that, she thrives. And I think it's really amazing to see particularly women represented in that way of being incredibly under like on um, you know underestimated and yet still managing to push through and and you know ultimately like she's she you know she thrives really so you said something really beautiful yesterday daisy about also that um you know the gift that all of these people give her in yeah. in, in their um in their generosity towards her and i think that also that also c comes up during a time when there was a lot of social upheaval as well and, and, and people really realizing that there's, you know, this imbalance and I inequities in our society. And it, it I, yeah, if you could talk yeah. a little bit about that, you put it so well, well yesterday. I remember at the end of the book, there's a really beautiful paragraph where um, Kai is thinking about the connections. You know, she, you know, there's, she, there's a large amount of the story where she's, you know, she's sort of on her own, but really at the end, she realizes that l what life is about is truly the connections that you make with each other. And I'm always really interested in stories about, you know, connections in our life and, and also how much goodness you can gift each other. You know, the small bit of um, kindness that take gifts Kaya by teaching her to read ultimately opens up like the rest of her life, really. And she's able to learn about this marsh that she loves so much. And same with Jumpin' and Mabel, the kindness that they gift her by, you know, looking after her and giving her the seeds. Like it makes the hugest of differences. And I think I'm always really interested in stories that um, celebrate um, the relationships we have that are really impactful and significant. And just, you know, how a little bit of kindness can go such a long way. Reese, this might sound kind of strange. But I feel like if you combined the suspense thriller vibes of Gone Girl and then the sort of resilience and living in the wild and nature of Wild, which are two titles that really launched you as a producer, you would get something kind of akin to Where the Crawdads Sing. So did you see connections there? What, were they something that drew you to the work? You know what I feel like is not on film very often is women in nature. And I remember when I read Wild um, how deeply resonant it was with me because I, like you, grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, in the country, running around the creek with my brother and a bunch of boy, neighborhood boys. I was such a tomboy. And I'd pick up crawdads on the creek or frogs or snakes or whatever. And if that was my childhood. But then like when I look at the, I don't know, just the, the movies out there that are women in nature, alone in nature, also, not being saved by someone because they're scared in the woods, <laughs> you know, but literally thriving in nature, living with, through nature, connecting with nature. 
it's almost non-existent as a genre. Mm -hmm. So for me, Wild was like this incredible breakthrough moment where I was like, yes, when I read Cheryl Strait's novel, I was like, that's how connected women are to nature. And I had the same feeling when I read this and I said, you know, Delia is very clearly a woman who's very connected to animals, to the spiritual world, to the nature world. And um, that's the kind of stuff, if I was a little girl, I would want to see in movies because that's who I was. Um, I didn't live in a fancy apartment in New York and have a job in a magazine. I was like, <laughs> right. I was like, just trying to figure out who I was in terms of just um, existing and surviving. So I think it's deeply resonant in that way. Yeah. But I do want to talk a little bit about the thriller aspect of it. And Taylor, maybe you can talk a little bit about like, did, would you find that sort of intriguing? Were you like, oh my gosh, did I do it? Did I not do it? <laughs> I, I, I was very confused because I, when I first read it, I'm like, this is about Kaya. This is Kaya's story. And then as it as it goes on, I'm like, did she did she not do it? And then I'm like, well, then who could it be? And it was kept kind of leaning back to, yeah, to, to me. And I'm like, I don't, do I have it in me? Maybe, <laughs> maybe I do. Um, but you don't really find out to the very, very end of the book, which is super important like as, as a reader to have that dangled at the end, that little carrot. Do you guys, do you think people are going to be surprised? Yes. Uh, I mean, I, when I, when I finished the book, I was like, for about five minutes, I was sat completely Same. flabbergasted. It yes. was, a, it's, um, I, I mean, it's a real page turner and I feel like the film is too. I, like obviously know what's happening because I've read the script and the book and was in it but still watching it I was like completely absorbed in the murder mystery aspect of it and like I think also the playing with time of you know you know we're we're in the we're in the sort of courtroom and then we flash back to her life and so we start to kind of develop this relationship with the person that we don't really know from the start and and it was really yeah that aspect of things made it so exciting I think. It's pretty brilliant too how um, you know Delia sets up so many uh, people who could have possibly done it, um, and really lays out those, you know, lays out all the reasons why it, it could have been Tate. It could have been jump in. It could have been yeah. an accident. I mean, there's mm -hmm. so many, it could have been Kaya, you know, there's, um, it sort of leads you down many different paths and, and it's all believable. Yeah. Um, which is why I think, you know, the ending is the reveal is the so, reveal good. so good. It's so, so good. <laughs> So another thing that really struck me while I was watching this is that it feels very much like a throwback to the type of summer movie we haven't seen since the 1990s. I mean, a real contrast with the dinosaurs and the superheroes that we're so used to getting in our summer movie houses. So I'm curious if those types of movies were a guiding principle for any of you or if that feeling was something you wanted to draw on while you were making it. I mean, I, I definitely, when I finished the book, I felt, had this feeling that this was a story that reminded me of folklore. Mm. Like it reminded me of the kind of fable you would hear told and retold in different versions set in different places. And this one just happened to be the story of the Marsh Girl mm -hmm. set in North Carolina during the 50s and 60s. Um, and so, but, and there was some, and it's because there's this universality to the story and to the themes of the book that I think lend, lend, you know, lend itself to that kind of fable. Um, and so when we were thinking about, um, how we were going to shoot it and the production design, we really wanted to give it, um, that sort of uh, fabulistic sense that I think lends itself to that timeless, um, feeling. I also think it's just been a long time since these kind of epic romance mysteries, of that, 
you know, of that kind of genre have have been really celebrated in the theatrical setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I learned that Sony really wanted this to be a theatrical release, that was, to me, that was another, you know, huge impetus for making the film was because it deserves to be seen in that, you know, in that kind of scale. It's shot with a scope mm. um, that is meant to be seen in a wide screen. It's not meant to be looked at on your iPhone. Sure. Um, so it's exciting that we're going to have that opportunity again. People are going to be so excited. It's going to be like hot outside mm. and they're going to be like, oh, I want to go on a date and be in this <laughs> cool air conditioning and watching this beautiful movie and fall in love and all those feelings. And then there's murder. <laughs> it's really fun. Well, atmosphere is a huge thing here, and you did go on location in New Orleans and the surrounding areas. How did that both enhance and complicate the experience? I mean, it definitely enhanced it in the sense that it was very, very easy, very quickly to get into the mindset of Kai because, like, you could not ignore the nature that was there. The wild was de- definitely on Kai's doorstep. Like, in fact, it actually met her doorstep because the set flooded and the lagoon actually got to her doorstep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that was also one of the complications, I guess, was that, um, yeah, the, the, the power of the sort of weather there. I mean, I'm from London, so I'd never really, um, been in an environment like that. So, you know, <laughs> hearing the cicadas and like the Spanish moss everywhere and these beautiful birds and dragonflies, it was just gorgeous. But, um, also I've never heard thunder and lightning like it. And we would have to sit in our cars while lightning passed. And <laughs> it was, yeah, lots of mosquitoes. So that was fun too. It gave it like a soundtrack though. You know, it mm. felt like you were really in it. And, um, when I read the book, I, you kind of like, put in little sounds and, and pictures and ideas about what it's going to feel and look like. And then you get to film in New Orleans and it's perfect. It's mm-hmm. exactly what I think people are going to expect. And then, wait, wait can I ask a question? Oh, yeah, go for it. Hey, what was the craziest animal story oh, okay. of all of them? Because there were so many crazy wild creatures. <laughs> One of my favorite memories um, is, is, Taylor doing a scene where he was getting specimens in the river and this humongous alligator swam past. <laughs> and Taylor was being so polite, being like, excuse me, sorry, is, is this um, okay? <laughs> you said if it looks bigger than than like five or six feet, probably hop out. I can't tell from here. I just see his eyes looking at me. I don't know if he's hungry or he's trying to say hello, but just, should I hop out? And he's like, uh, rolling. Wait, you, were in, you were in the river when it happened. And the waiter is like up to here and I just see this log looking thing, like this large log go by. I'm like, oh, that's funny. I haven't <laughs> very, you should probably call your producer. Very, I mean, that yeah. sounds really like not <laughs> trying to get safe. a hold of her. <laughs> it was yeah. very funny. That that was funny. Uh, I think one of my fondest memories was um, I was washing my clothes and I accidentally tumble dried a cockroach, which I didn't. I had never seen one, and it was drying perfectly flat. Um, <laughs> and he survived too. He just got right back up. He got right back up. <laughs> very clean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh All right. One of my favorites is seeing David Strathair on his day off come to set where Kaya's house was built and was out in the woods with the animal safety with one of the snake uh, capture you know they have these long poles with um, clips on the end to pick up snakes and he was out there looking for snakes just wanted to be useful (laughs) yes and then he was cutting down some trees for us yeah he's so amazing he's incredible you also we also went fishing on one of our first like hangouts together and i was casting for three four hours and you throw your first line out and Get a bite immediately. <laughs> Time for me to retire. Very chuffed with that. Yeah. She's like, is this usually this easy? Just <laughs> it's just yeah. Speaking of the water, so much of Tate and Kaya's love story is forged there and in their boats. 
What were some of the challenges of learning to drive those and then filming those scenes? I, I felt the biggest challenge was leaving the boat behind at the end. I loved, I loved riding that, that boat. Fun. It was so, it was difficult to get me out actually. And the, one of the days we, we drove her, that was really lovely. We like drove home yeah, and during the sunset. Yeah, it was gorgeous. I loved riding that boat. Um, those were some of my favorite days because we would just, we'd be filming on this, in this water. And it was so peaceful and like, yeah, just all day just riding a boat. It was gorgeous. The hard part was getting your boat like docked and Over timing it right and, uh, and not, smashing into the camera crew in front of you. <laughs> that was um, It was fun. You guys give us a, a lot of uh, freedom. I was surprised mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm sure insurance was crazy, but we, I liked that you let us, <laughs> let us do that. That was super That's fun. what it was really like in 1950. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, it was a bit challenging dealing with the rising and lowering uh, tides because we would scout a location where we were going to shoot some scenes on boats and then we would get out there in the morning and the water was too low and the boats would be getting stuck in the mud. Um, so then we would have to quickly look around and find another area where the water was deeper, where we could actually move the boats and not have them get stuck. Um, and it's all, you know, the, the marshes are so flat, there's no shade. So mm -hmm. finding just the right time of day mm -hmm. to shoot where you're not being beaten on, you know, by the, beaten on by the sun yes. was also challenging. And going to the loo was, was, yeah. uh, I have to say you were all troopers because I only visited like one day and I was like dripping with sweat. <laughs> I was like, this is really hot. It's really hot and rustic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's all on the film and you can see it out there and you can't fake stuff like that. Yeah. And it's so beautiful and textured and it's a part of the world a lot of people never ever see in their whole life. It's like this dreamy experience of going to the movies and seeing this world you've never seen. Okay, so Daisy, when we chatted before, you described to me that you had this prep period of really getting to immerse yourself in Kaya's world, both sort of her connection with nature and her skills as an artist and, and how she brings the natural world to life through her drawings and her art. Um, can you talk about that a bit and that process? And then Taylor, um, did you have a, a similar experience? Yeah, well, we, we were there for about a month before we started filming. So we had a good chunk of time to actually like immerse ourselves in, you know, in the story and the character and, and, and prep, which is so nice. You don't always get that time. So, um, you know, I, I did a lot of like, um, we, you know, we did, Rie, yeah, we, I went with Rhea, did some movement and like exercise, try and get fit because obviously Kai is like carrying heavy muscles and you know I'm not very strong I'm not sure if you can tell but <laughs> um, <laughs> so that we did a bit of that and you know we had this amazing artist because Kai is an incredible drawer and so um Kirby Fegan who was did a lot of the artwork for the film um I went to the park with her and like started doing some drawing and it was really lovely and learning the accent was a big thing too um and yeah, and, and obviously learning to drive the boat and fish. And it was really, really lovely just to get that time to really start to like hone certain skills. Yeah, because ne I'd never really had that before. Yeah, you guys gave us like so much time to, to have it be all encompassing experience as opposed to showing up and, you know, this is what you're, you're filming today. We got to live in it and, and breathe in it for a while. And um, the costumes too, getting to wear those while, you know, we were like Tate's boots, like getting to walk around in those and, mm -hmm. um, Mirren was an amazing costume designer and uh, yeah, you don't really get as much time as, as you should on this one. We had more, more than necessary. So it was nice to be able to run around and get to know each other and do swamp tours and uh, go fishing and nature walks and do, you know, stuff with our movement coach. It was, it was perfect. It was nice to be able to rehearse sometimes 
on the actual uh, locations where we were going to be shooting. So we had to do some rehearsals in a studio, but, you know, whenever we could get out into the park or um, we rehearsed the the feather stump tree at the Josephina tree, you know, uh, a few days before we shot. So, you know, we could actually feel what it was going to be like to move around the landscape and um, make sure that everybody felt comfortable so they weren't arriving and walking barefoot on the land for the first time on, on camera. I got to spend a bit of time too with um, Jojo, who plays young Kaya. Who oh, is she's amazing. An excellent actor. <laughs> um, so I really love she that. She blew me away. Yeah, she's one of yeah. a kind. And so I think like watching watching her and like we would sort of play, play together and it was really fun because there's a sort of um, freedom and a like joy to her naturally as a, and, and because she's a wee child and I think that aspect of Kaya's sort of... Um, younger life like I wanted to find versions of that joy again in in the way she appreci- appreciates nature and so I think I love just watching her play with her you siblings. should call her a wee child yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's very cute that's very very cute just call something a wee child <laughs> And Jojo is very much, you know, she'll, a wee child. she'll just, <laughs> she she's a wee, a wee child. child and she will just run and climb a tree and, mm-hmm. you know, um, just, you know, the way children do, they'll just, you know, put them in a landscape and they'll run around and find the fun. And yeah. it was really nice to see you guys get right into that yeah, together. She was just the best, wasn't she? Yeah. <laughs> she was like a mini, mini me version of you. She was. She's cooler than me. Way cooler. Bar, way cooler than me. <laughs> <laughs> but she was. <laughs> As another part of that prep period, you two really have to build this slow burn romance that we see unfold on screen. And both Kaya and Tate are pretty quiet souls. So how do you find that and then establish that chemistry and soulfulness between them? Because, you know, it's not a dialogue heavy relationship. I think it was just time spent together off camera. I mean, we're all me, Harris and uh, Daisy. um, We're all very like close knit and Due to COVID, we weren't allowed to spend too much time with, you know, with other people out in the town. So we did movie nights. Uh, she taught me how to DJ, <laughs> funny enough. Um, we just sit and have tea and talk for hours and um, just kind of spend as much time as we could, um, you know, offset, uh, getting to know each other and mm-hmm. talking about the script and the characters and how much the book impacted us. Um, and she's stupidly funny. So <laughs> you want to spend as much time with her as possible. How long that's made my day. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's really it. We, you know, it's it's hard to fake that like uh, friendship. It's hard to, and I think that's the key to chemistry. Really, is like having a shared sense of humor, actually, and and enjoying acting with each other and enjoying each other's company. And luckily, we really we all really did. And so, you know, it, it was just really fun because I was acting with my friends, and that always makes such a difference. And you know, I think that Tate and Kaya, I think what they they are they are very quiet. They are very sort of introverted people and they connect on a real cerebral level they really like enjoy each other's minds and it was really fun to sort of explore that relationship which is so so different to her relationship with chase you know taylor tate i wouldn't say he betrays kaya but he he lets her down but how did you reconcile that for yourself i don't uh, he made it such a big mistake uh, he, he thought tate thought that by leaving, he was going to, um, you know, somehow be helping her, but really he was doing something selfish because he was scared. He didn't think that Kaya could ever leave that world and, you know, go experience life in Barclay Cove. And, um, when he finally did come back, he realized how big of a mistake he had made because of who she had turned to while I was gone. Um, 
and uh, I think he'll f never forgive himself for that. And so he'll spend the rest of his life trying to make it up to her. Well, you all already have spoken to how much the book resonated with you, but how much of a Bible was it for you on set? Or was it something that you internalized before you started production and then just set aside? Yeah, well, I, I read and reread and reread and reread that book. Um, you had it on set with you every day, too. I did. And I, I always find it very helpful to, to lift like specific quotes that I found very useful. And so my, my script was always covered with anything that resonated with me. But then there's also a level where you kind of have to leave it and know that you are you are hopefully making something that's like, you know, unique in itself. And it's, I sort of like to think of it them as cousins in a way that you, you know, there, there's similarities and familiarities, but they're also two separate things. And so um, there was a level of going, right, I need to, I need to now just take my own interpretation and uh, fall into what, what this world is. So, yeah. It was such a great resource for us, you know, at every level of the um, production. When we were doing production design, we could go back to passages from the book and look at how Delia described the house or look at how the marsh was, you know, described as this necklace of glasses, of, of grasses and go out and try to find the similar looking, you know, um, landscapes. Um, and anytime we had questions, we could reach out to Delia and she was always very excited <laughs> to be helpful. So we have, you know, there's a, uh, this memorable scene in the book where Kaya has just learned to read and she's reading the names of her family members in the family Bible. Um, and it's, it was such a moving scene um, in the book. And I know that we were all very aware of, we were, we were, you know, when we were shooting that scene, that this was, you know, one of those iconic scenes from the book. And I remember reaching out to Delia to say, okay, well, we need to, we have to list out all these names and the birth dates and whose side of the family is it and kind of getting into a, you know, a deeper conversation um, with her to make sure that we got it right. And so it was just, it was so always so helpful that we could turn to it um, and we could turn to Delia, mm -hmm. um, but also know that, you know, we were making the movie version and there were going to be differences for sure. Wasn't it amazing that she came on set? Amazing. I got so emotional about this idea of this woman who's written this novel in her 70s and all of these characters were just in her mind. This whole universe was just in her imagination. And then she got to see all these amazing artists collaborate and bring their best selves and their best work. And then she gets to walk into her own imagination. And that's what's so magical about movie making. I just feel like it, it really is magic. Yeah. Was it exciting <laughs> having her there? It was. And it was, it was a real shock for me the first time I went to um, Kaya's shack as well, because it was like, it really was like it had been lifted from my imagination as well and I think it's amazing you know so many so many creatives sort of um minds have to collaborate and and also sort of align to make something like so accurate and I really I really got a sort of I was really struck when I when I got there because I couldn't believe like how much it was like what I'd imagined so I can't imagine what it was like for <laughs> Delia that must have been so surreal when she came on set she was like I've I've been living with you in my head for so long and now I get to finally see you in person. It was like this, oh my God, moment. So nice. I was like, me? <laughs> I will say it was also very nerve wracking. Mm -hmm. The first time she came, I was terrified because I thought, oh my God, what if this doesn't live up to her expectations? And um, she very quickly made it clear that like there, you know, it was all, it, I think she really always felt what a gift it was to, to go through that experience. And I don't know if she was just being generous and kind, but she seemed genuinely just so thrilled yeah. to yeah. be there and to, to have this experience. Um, thank goodness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh,
y'all landed Taylor Swift to record an original song for this. And I think the question we all want to know the answer to is how. <laughs> That's a great question for Taylor Swift. Yes. Um, we got a call that Taylor had been so inspired by the book and read the book and she heard the movie was coming out that when she was with her partners and they were writing the folklore album, they wrote a song specifically for this movie. It's so haunting. It's so beautiful. It's so accurate. <laughs> and we were just the benevolent receivers of this incredible artistic gift. Um, but it's a beautiful, you know, the things that she's written and said, and we've spoken about, about her writing the song is just really touching how much she's moved by that it was female authorship and that, you know, she's so inspired by Daisy and by Livy and that, you know, this incredible group of women got together to make this timeless, classic, romantic film. So I think people are going to love the song. It's amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, Livy, I feel like what you were saying about it being a fable, like she must have felt the same thing while she was writing it because it was all part of that process where she was literally writing folklore. Yes. I mean, she, and she, you know, talked about how, um, she wanted it to feel like this haunting gothic lullaby. Um, and she used instruments that were only available, you know, before 1953 and she recorded it in all one take the way they recorded songs at the time. So she really, put so much thought into um, both the tonality of the song and also, you know, the way in which she um, recorded it, that it was so moving to me. Just reading her letter before I even heard the song was so moving. And then I was it, a mess of tears when the song ended. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, I don't know how she did it, but she really captures the feeling that you, the, it, she captures the feeling that you have when the book ends. Mm -hmm. And so my hope was that if we could end the movie in a similar way, then the song would be the absolute perfect space to live in and absorb what you just um, witnessed. But she's clearly one of, you know, the greatest storytellers and songwriters of our time. Yeah. And what a gift to get. Unbelievable. Very cool. Very cool. Unbelievable. <laughs> okay, we're just about out of time. But to conclude this, for all of you, what was the wildest, most memorable moment you had throughout the entire experience? I think for me, one of them was was walking onto set and seeing Kaya's shack because it truly was lifted from my mind. And I was like, wow, this is quite something. And then also, I think in that location, we would get the most incredible sunsets. Mm. And they were just like the colors on the front of the book too, like beautiful orange and pinks. And I, I'd never seen a sunset like it. So I think standing on the, on the bank really and watching that sunset was like, wow, this is really special. I think just the times... Um in the middle of a take where you almost get pulled back into your regular life and go, how am I a part of this? How am I, you know, able to help tell this story and, uh, just being amazed. Um, and then again, like the sunsets were pretty incredible. Just getting to take it in with your, your best friends. And, um, I don't know. I, I miss it. I really miss it. Yeah. I think there were many, uh, boat rides home, <laughs> When, you know, we'd always be racing the sun to get everything shot before sunset. And then sometimes we'd just be quietly boating, you know, back to base at the end of a long day. And I would just be looking around the marsh and the sun would be setting. And I numerous times would just start crying. And it got to a point where, you know, I'd look at Polly, my DP, and we'd both be in the same place. And I'd just say, how lucky are we? How lucky are we? I can't believe this is our, I can't believe this is our job. Um, it was very moving, very moving. 
I, I would say the same thing. I think it was just pure magic walking into Kaya's environment that, that I'd read this book and it came alive and all the beautiful art direction and every shell and every feather and every book. And, um, it was just so lovingly constructed by all of you. And, um, and I will say there's one magical shot that I was like, Oh my God, it takes my breath away with the tree. I so love trees. <laughs> I grew up climbing a magnolia tree every day of my childhood. And that tree is so emotional and beautiful and otherworldly and stands for something so timeless. And, and, um, it's just you've made a beautiful film. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I'm so happy to just be part of it. <laughs>a good conversation. Thank you so much to our panelists and everyone who joined us for this episode where the Crawdads thing hits theaters July 15th. And that is it for this chapter of Screen After Reading. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at the Maureen Lee. This episode of Screen After Reading is hosted by Maureen Lee Linker, produced by Maureen Lee Linker, Clarissa Cruz, Chanel Johnson, and Sammy Junio. Edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.